When you think of American history, I'm guessing there are a few highlights that immediately come to mind. Pilgrims on the Mayflower, founding fathers in powdered wigs, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, bombs bursting in air, you know, that sort of thing. Those things happened, but they're not the entirety of our nation's history. For many people, the story of America is not about the pursuit of liberty and justice. It's about brutality and oppression. It's about broken treaties and stolen land. It's about exploitation and denial of rights. Black Americans, Indigenous Americans, Latinx Americans, queer and trans Americans, immigrants from all over the world who now call America home. Their stories are just as much a part of American history as the framers who wrote the Constitution. And so, America is not a single experience. It's the interwoven threads of 330 million people in this country and all the Americans who came before them. Untextbook producer Anya Dua thinks about this a lot. Her family is made up of many of these distinct threads, and all of them are fundamentally American. It's really because I come from two very divergent experiences of the United States. My mom's side of the family immigrated to the United States before the Revolutionary War. So on one side, I have that strong history with the United States. And then on the other side, my dad is a first-generation immigrant from Australia. And his parents were first-generation immigrants to Australia from India. So I think it's really interesting when I was studying American history to think about, you know, how should I be viewing American history and how should other people view American history? Is it a positive experience? Is it negative? Or is that a really unrefined way to think about it? On this episode of Untextbooked, Anya interviews author Jill Lepore about her book, These Truths, A History of the United States. It's a book that tells the story of our country through the eyes of the ordinary people who built it. I'm Gabe Hostin. This is Untextbooked. More after the break. Untextbooked. When I was researching your work, I came across this really interesting article about how you typically write about and study microhistory, which focuses on specific events to explore broader themes. And, you know, these truths is 800 plus pages and seems to be a diversion from that. So what prompted you to take on this project and how did your past writing uh, about microhistory impact the book? Yeah, that's a really great question. What most people think of as history is macro history. That is to say, it's a study of large-scale political change and to some degree social change. But beginning in the 1960s, when women and people of color started to get PhDs and study history, not just American history, but all kinds of history, they found themselves interested in stories of ordinary people, um, people whose political power was expressed not through election to office. In most cases, these are people who are denied even the right to vote. This is where women's history comes from. It's where social history comes from. A lot of the early history of slavery and immigration fell into this category of, of the study of kind of ordinary people. And it, in a weird way, came to be called microhistory 
in the sense that it was looking at the lives of individual ordinary people, but giving them the same kind of attention that you might give the life of a president or a, a monarch. I think also, though, that calling it microhistory ended up being a way to belittle the whole field of inquiry, which is to say, like, this is what this is what the girls do somehow. You know, this is what people of color do. Well, they're just like they're interested in, you know, immigrants lives or they're interested in, you know, motherhood or they're interested in, you know, the oppression of slavery, like that. These were somehow the little stories, which drives me nuts, because I think that recovering the stories of ordinary people is frankly a lot harder. And finally, I do think it is tells us more. You know, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about how microhistory really, it isn't really micro because you're, you're really looking at a specific or a couple specific events to explore a broader theme, which is, I'm sure, in many cases more effective and more interesting than just looking completely at the, you know, the broad theme just itself with no other context. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think also you tend to remember those stories a little bit better. The way these truths works is to explode the false binary between two competing and highly politically polarized versions of American history on the right, that everything that ever happened in the United States was a triumph, and on the left, that everything that ever happened was an atrocity. So we think about 19th century populism, and I tell a story of Mary Lease, who was this Kansas farmer and mother of six, who was this ferocious orator. And I think it's easier to remember the story of Mary Lease and then be like, oh, yeah, that's what populism was about, um, than it is to just read a bunch of kind of dry paragraphs about populism and then try to like prepare for a test. So it's a way to to help people hold on to what are complicated ideas. And one complicated idea that really stuck with me throughout the entire book, this concept of the American experiment. So I'd love if you could touch on that concept and its history and maybe its success or lack thereof. Yeah, so the framers of the Constitution understood what they were doing as an Enlightenment-era experiment. You know, it's a premise of the Enlightenment to sort of derive universal laws of of human experience and including the human capacity for government. The 18th century is the first time people really talk at length about the science of politics, right? So they had this kind of empiricism about politics that we don't really quite have anymore. We have mainly cynicism about politics, but they thought they were building a machine and they talked about it as a machine that um, when we talk about checks and balances, they really meant that, you know, in a physical sense, the way in a clock, the clockworks have checks and balances and there are weights and and parts of the clock that are set into balance with other parts of the clock. And, you know, the idea that you could sort of set the machine, you could wind the clock and then it would continue in motion forward if they designed it with enough precision. So there's a way in which they really understood themselves to be political scientists with an emphasis on the word scientist there. But they also had a sense of the fragility of of the experiment, right? Like, so when they designed the Constitution, it's absolutely the case that those men, and they were all men, didn't expect it to last that long. Like, they thought maybe it would last a generation. May, you know, no written Constitution had lasted, right? Like, it's the first written Constitution of any durability in the modern world. So, so yeah, so did it did it work? I mean, it's you're absolutely right. Like, this is an experiment, and you, it's not over, and it's also not resolved. So, you are the scientist trying to figure out, is this working? 
Um, and if it's not working, what needs to be adjusted? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of something that is ever changing and we can't really pinpoint one time and be like, we've got it now. It's something that will evolve. I mean, if we're talking specifically about the Constitution, right, that's a debatable proposition. So the idea that the Constitution is subject to evolution is a Darwinian idea. And so Darwin's 1859, right, on the origin of species. So it's really not until the 1890s that Americans start talking about the Constitution as a living thing that can evolve. And then that's a whole branch of jurisprudence, right? There are all these thinkers that say the Constitution is like an organism, it's like a tree, and we need to grow some new branches. And people who are willing to really rethink the constitutional arrangement tend to have a kind of Darwinian interpretation of it. But on the other side, on the other side of the political spectrum down to today are people who say, no, the Constitution is essentially, it's like the Ten Commandments, as if it were etched in stone, as if the founding fathers were kind of divinely inspired and we therefore must defer to the original meaning of all of these words. So it's a weird thing to have a political arrangement that's based on a written document that, that like is very difficult to amend. Um, so like all nations have complicated relationships with their own history, but the U.S. has this weird like we have this founding document that that is a historical document, but also is a creed and also is a frame of government. So, yeah. So how you think about it, is it? perfectable? Is it always evolving? Was it perfect? Like, that's actually a matter of interpretation. You said that the American experiment sort of rests on three political ideals, political equality, natural rights, and the sovereignty of the people. Where is that derived from? And do you think that those are the three most important things still today? The title of the book, These Truths, comes from the Declaration of Independence, and those are the three truths that are asserted as self-evident. So a lot of the book is devoted to explaining where those ideas came from, because they are, I do believe, foundational to the United States. And one of the things that the book argues is that those ideas are actually forged out of a crucible of violence, that the Americans who write those documents come to an understanding of natural rights partly due to listening to people whose rights they have taken away, calling for them. The incredible pleas of runaway slaves, fugitive wives, runaway apprentices, indigenous peoples waging wars, fighting for their independence. There's this chorus of voices in early America that is actually insisting on the inalienability of our human rights, um, on our right to govern ourselves, Uh, on our equality with one another. And among those people are the people that come to write the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution. But I don't think as a historian that those ideas would have been made manifest in those documents were were it not for all the protests of other people. So one of the things that the book really strenuously argues is that, you know, that these founding truths are not Thomas Jefferson's founding truths. He held the pen, but he is giving voice to this centuries-long cry of protest that is with us still, that is about whether or not those promises have ever been realized. Yeah, and I think through a lot of our history, we've been trying to realize those promises for people who are not white or who are not male, trying to give that to all American citizens. And do you think that we are in a place to really achieve these three rights, these three inalienable rights for all of our citizens? 
Yeah, I do believe that the long course of American history has brought us much closer to each of those things. I think if you look year to year, it doesn't look that way. There are some pretty bad years. Um, there are some horrible, horrible years. There's a lot of kind of two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, three steps back. It's not a continuous progression. I think that's a fiction. It's an important fiction, I suppose, but that's not how history works. You can't look at the imposition of Jim Crow laws in the 1870s and 1880s or Japanese imprisonment during the Second World War or the incarceration and detention of immigrants at the border in recent years as steps forward in a march of equal rights. Like Those are all setbacks. But if you zoom out and look at the whole of American history on the whole, the direction has been toward realizing those those promises, but not as gifts given by people in power, but as rights fought for by people struggling to acquire them. Something that you said that really struck me in the book was that for a lot of our history, slavery was our Achilles heel. So what do you think our Achilles heel is now? Hmm. I think that our failure to reckon with that past continues to cripple our ability to get along with one another and make plans for a better future. What is reckoning with our past? What does that look like? I think it looks like uh, having better books, teaching better history. I think a lot of people protesting on the streets would suggest that it involves taking down Confederate monuments and thinking about new monuments. I would suggest that many people think it involves a larger set of replacements of our national symbols. So I'm thinking maybe of the the movement to put Harriet Tubman on a unit of paper currency uh, and the resistance to that by the current Treasury Department, in spite of widespread public support for it. I think there are, there are people who would argue about the importance of reparations or something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. These would be like all on a list that I think people would, would make about this. What I think, I mean, I'm like, I'm about studying history, right? Like, like that's, that's what matters to me. I think you can't do that work until you have a better sense of the past. And I think this has been an incredibly important moment, you know, really since 2013 and the beginning of Black Lives Matter Um, But down to and including the Standing Rock, Dakota Access Pipeline protests, I think there has been a real sense of urgency that is across all those lines. I think that a lot of the rhetoric of Barack Obama's presidency uh, went a long way toward doing some of that reconciliation. He certainly meant it to go a hell of a lot further than it did go. But it's easy in this moment to sort of set that aside as, you know, that was misplaced audacity of hope or something. Um, But I think there was a lot of uh, incredible rhetorical power and symbolic power to that presidency. So, I mean, there are a lot of things, um, but there have been a lot of other moments in American history where this attempt has been made and it has failed. Uh, So it remains to be seen what's going to happen this time around. I'd love to talk a little bit about the relationship between the people and the state throughout our history, because I mean, I think it's fair to say that that has been a debate in terms of the extent over which the government should have a role in its citizens' everyday lives. And I think in history class, we're told, whether this be true or not, that 
the state governments are favored over the federal government and the individual is favored over the collective. And, you know, I was reading your book and it seems like from the collectivism of the Puritan colonies to the New Deal after the Great Depression, we have had some policies that would be considered socialist or do focus on the collective and the public good that really come from the federal government. And you quoted John Winthrop, who said that the care of the public must oversway all private respects. So, you know, sort of from this analysis in your book, do you think that the relationship between the people in the state currently and throughout our history has been going into a productive and healthy direction, or do we need to reevaluate? Yeah, Anya, that's a really fascinating question. I mean, I guess I think that the predominant stream in American history favors the embrace of the commonwealth. What that's leavened with is the celebration of the individual. And so it's been the tension between those two things, the balance between those two things that's been so dynamic for so much of American history. I would say myself um, that really since the era of Reagan, um, since Reagan's election in, in 1980, that the balance has been off that the modern conservative movement and neoliberalism emphasize and celebrate the individual at the expense of the public good and at the expense of the commonwealth, the drive to deregulate and privatize, I think has run amok in kind of late finance capitalism. But political campaigns and crusades and movements that call upon people to think about their actions in relationship to the, to the public good are incredibly inspiring. But I think the absence of that kind of a call for the last 40, 40 years in many quarters has, has led to a, a tremendous decay of democracy. You're talking about sort of making a positive impact on future generations. And I'd love to ask, why is it important for me and my generation to learn about American history and to read your book? I think I myself find it very difficult to know how to go forward in any realm of my life without having an understanding of how I got there. Like most things that we think about, like we, 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 we get our bearings from history. I like, I don't know how you go vote unless you have some sense of what the history, you know, maybe it's, I, I just don't, I don't quite understand why, why you wouldn't need to understand the history of the nation to live in a nation. Right. Yeah. And I'd love to, ask um, the last question on a very positive note. I would just love to know what gives you hope for the health of our nation and the future? I think there. I think there's tons generationally to be hopeful about. I think there is a great and a probably unavoidable sense on the part of younger people that certain things that were taken as a given are no longer a given, that the economy will continue to grow that jobs will still be there for you, that the air we breathe will still be healthy, like that there, there's a tremendous amount of concern about negative change that I think leads to positive action. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks a lot for doing this. Dr. Jill Lepore is professor of history and law at Harvard University 
and a staff writer at The New Yorker. She also hosts her own podcast called The Last Archive, which you should definitely subscribe to. Anya Dua is a junior at Ransom Everglade School, and she's the founder of Gen Z Identity Lab, a site that publishes articles and opinions written by young people. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbooked is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Antman. Fernanda Rain is our den mother. Be sure to check out our website at untextbooked.com and follow us at Untextbooked on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. We're only a few episodes in, but we are already thinking about the future. We have more historians on board, and we have so many more topics we want to explore. And you can help us do that. Go to untextbook.com and click support. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.